0: I think people are just afraid of thawing. You know, they've been frozen. These things that they've been not allowing themselves to feel, right, that they've been exiling, has been frozen for so long that when you rest, you begin to thaw. When you begin to thaw, you begin to feel. You begin to feel the extent, the intensity of your frostbite, And that doesn't feel good. It's temporary, but it doesn't feel good. I mean, avoidance is great until it's not.
1: I hit a wall recently, like a new kind of I'm done. My husband was at his book club with some of his dad friends from the neighborhood, and I was home with the kids working on, you know, usual stuff like decorating for Halloween and helping the kids stay on top of chores and homework. But earlier in the day, one of my kids had about a good two hour plus meltdown. The relaxing morning I needed after an extra full week and month dissipated quickly. So I adjusted my expectations. This adjustment, because of a kid struggling, was not my first radio, and I get it. Things have been a lot since going back to school this fall and after the last two years of COVID-altered schedules and connections. Everyone is feeling it. We worked through things. I listened. I put on my therapist hat. I empathized. I navigated the impulses to roll my eyes and say, really in vintage Seth Meyers Amy Polar fashion from their hilarious on repeat sketch on SNL's weekend update circa 2006 and 2008 you know it it really gives me a lot of joy to respond differently to my kid's struggles and how my struggles were received as a kid it's it's healing for me so i slapped a figurative gold star on my chest and moved on to the rest of the day after things settled down now <laughs> Fast forward to later in the same day when I was home alone with the kids, and kid number two tag teamed in on the struggle bus. There was a lot of hurt, a lot of lamenting that needed to be tended to, but no matter what I did, nothing helped de escalate things with kid number two. I felt my confidence and sense of pride from earlier in the day dissipate. I felt like my skills just disappeared. And then something shifted and it spooked me as I usually hunker down and figure things out without going into despair, but not this night. My body shut down and that spooked me. And I started seeing flashes of all I was carrying from that week, the last month, shoot, the last couple of years. And the emotions flooded me. I felt humbled as my body reminded me of my capacity limits and how my own care for others came at the expense of caring well for myself. I'm Rebecca Chang, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. We carry so much these days. I know many of you who are also caring for others who also care a lot. The mental load we all carry right now is next level. But just because this load is invisible does not make it any less important. Kids, pets, aging family members, school, work, the economy, democracy, access to safe and affordable health care, chronic health issues, the list goes on and on and feels like it keeps piling on without relief or end in sight. And this is on top of past pains and difficult life experiences we carry too. And as I was recently reminded, I do not think most of us realize how much pain we carry until we end up on the brink. I realize how common living life weighed down by the emotional pain we carry is right now. And I also realize for folks like me with privilege makes what we carry slightly more manageable and how others without an engaged second parent or sufficient income or the benefit of whiteness or health insurance and, and much more can make what's carried even heavier. I see how messages like what doesn't kill you make you stronger and no pain, no gain um, made carrying a lot. Well, like cool, or at least like a badge of honor or bragging rights. And when I look back, these messages were reinforced in school, in sports, and especially in places where I worked. And I worked with hardworking, brilliant, capable people over the years. But we all sucked up grief, loss, breakups, trauma, financial stress, family strains, and more, sharing a little with our coworkers and rarely if ever taking the time off we truly needed to care for ourselves or our loved ones and often because time off was on a luxury many of us had to lean on now i suspect this may land as a lofty belief to some but i do believe our places of work can cultivate spaces that support healing instead of perpetuating overfunctioning and overworking while piling on our mental load but this requires a different relationship with struggle where it's not minimized, where emotions aren't shamed and where hard work or overworking isn't romanticized. And if you choose to lead a business in life that does not add to the pain we all carry, a Band-Aid approach to struggle will not be enough. When I look at the core tenets of a trauma-informed culture and workplace, safety, transparency, peer support, collaboration, empowerment, and understanding race, culture, and gender, and other areas of inclusion, I see an opportunity to move beyond performative promises and create some change that both challenges and heals. And when I make room for more nuance and complexity by upping our own capacity for discomfort, hard still feels hard, but it's less likely to become a burden and instead often moves me and those I work with into a deeper sense of clarity and connection. I see more and more the impact of how we view work and connection and bottom line can actually create space for others to catch their breath and feel a little less alone carrying all they do. Now, I know from my work with leaders and clients, it's so many of you are in the same space questioning business as usual at the expense of your well being. And if you want to cultivate spaces that have a greater capacity for discomfort, then you need to start with an audit of your own current capacity and all you're carrying. <laughs> Shoot, I think we all need to get clear on how much we truly are carrying right now. I see how skilled we're at it doing it all and getting by that it takes our body or a really big life event to get us to pause and take inventory. My own recent face down moment was a reminder that I fell back into some not so distant habits of hunkering down and just pushing through as my own mental load reached capacity. (laughs) And with 20 years of helping people release the burdens of their pain, along with an obnoxious <laughs> list of trainings and certifications. I still miss the cues when I carry too much and need to put some things down. At the heart of hitting the wall again recently was my relationship to work, the pressures I put on myself, and the expectations that fuel me over committing. I am in my own deep rumble, rethinking how to do work in life. And I'm Grateful for the many thought leaders, activists, and storytellers that I've been reading and listening to who have been saying for a while that the way we live and work is not sustainable. One of those thought leaders is my dear friend and colleague, Natalie Gutierrez, and I am so grateful she came back for a part two of our conversation about her book, pain we carry along with a deeper dive into the impact of carrying pain because of unaddressed trauma toxic culture and unrealistic expectations of ourselves and others natalie gutierrez identifies as she her and is a puerto rican psychotherapist author and speaker who grew up in native lenape land now known as new york city Much of her work is dedicated to providing trauma-informed psychotherapy to Black, Indigenous, and other people of color and mixed race. She is a proud mother of two and a growing equestrian. Listen for Natalie's reflections on what happens when we allow ourselves to really feel our feelings. Pay attention to what Natalie shared about being the medicine and enough. And notice how Natalie came to cultivating a better relationship with herself and her body. Now, please welcome back Natalie Gutierrez to the Unburdened Leader. Natalie, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for coming back and continuing these important conversations. Thank you so much for having me back, Rebecca. All right. I want to jump in and talk about the polarity between urgency and rest. (laughs) Mm. Okay. It's like so much feels and, and maybe really truly is often urgent right now. Mm -hmm. And and the need for rest is deep. We are exhausted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You write in your book, The Pain We Carry, how rest can feel threatening and feel like we're opening up to harm. And -hmm. you also identify the pressure to finish everything right away. Yeah. You you made it very clear that you're not going to collude with the grind of urgency in your book. And you encourage us to do the same, yet... The struggle is real. Work deadlines, family demands, client and customer care. So Natalie, what are the trade-offs that you weigh right now as you address the constant polarity between urgency and rest?
0: You know, even I struggle with that, (laughs) right? Because there are certain things that are urgent, right? But if everything becomes urgent, which is, I think, a lot of what our culture has conditioned us to believe that everything is urgent. Everything, everything really needs us has to be done at this time, right? Otherwise, you're not going to be able to rest, right? Whatever task, whatever needs to be done, if you don't complete it, you will not rest. Kind of like leading a dog alone with a bone, right? You're just kind of like, you want your rest. You need to complete all of these things. We've just been caught in this, in this dynamic, right? In this belief system, this paradigm. I don't even want to say if we don't rest, we won't complete these things. It's if hmm. we don't rest, we will perish. Like our soul will be tired. We will be unrecognizable within ourselves. And it's even deeper than, I mean, we'll, be, we'll definitely be perpetuating capitalist culture and all of that. But like, what does it do to our bodies if we are not resting? If everything if everything is contingent on the things that we do or the things that we complete it just hmm. you will never attain rest so i mean i'm just thinking and this is definitely a, le- a legacy burden in my family my grandpa used to tell my mom and he has this 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 quote that invent- my mom told me this one time and i know this really has put a lot of pressure on her to complete things there's a quote In Spanish, it says, no deja para mañana lo que se puede hacer hoy, which means don't leave for tomorrow, which what can be completed today. And there's a part of me that hears that, right? And there's also my system that says, well, here, let's pause for a minute. Let's slow down for a minute, right? How much of this is truly urgent? How much of this really has to be completed? today or in the next several days and the next several weeks? Are there things that can really wait, especially when it comes to our mental health, our physical health, right? Psychological, can there be things that wait? But there's been Mm. such a place, such a pressure of urgency on everything. And that stems from capitalist culture. And that also stems from white supremacy culture.
1: In our last conversation, you you were talking about kind of a overall mindset, even of feeling behind. Um, feeling behind and a lot of the burdens of racism and implicit bias around that. And but what's interesting, Natalie, I am hard pressed to have a week where I don't have to remind someone I'm working with and myself, I am not behind. Mm. I am on time. And that that it's 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 like this current we're in right now. And there's a risk of being misunderstood as seeing, I mean, I'm from the Midwest where you know work ethic is, you know, is, 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 is a huge identity and you get stuff done, you never quit, you don't flake. And then there also is the sense of, I can get it done the quickest. So I am valuable. I am, and this is what everyone's expecting. And if I disappoint them, what does that mean about my relationship? What does that mean about my job? I, I'll be honest with you, now, I've been working for years trying to help my system trust resting. Yeah. Like you wrote, resting is threatening. When I read I was like, damn straight it is. Like, I'm like, I'm going, it's 12 o'clock and I have a cancellation and I'm going to sit and watch a show or I'm going to work out or I'm going to go in the garden or I'm going to go for a walk with a friend and it feels like I'm breaking this rule. This is a privilege to talk about resting.
0: Yeah, you know, and and to, the, you know, the person that would say it's a privilege to rest, right? I'm just thinking about folks, too, that I've known that, you know, have had to work three jobs, right? To right. be able to poop up, put food on the table because capitalist culture, right? Um, and the grind culture that you're mentioning, that it makes sense to me why there are people that can really see, like, if I don't, if I rest... Or speaking about rest is a privilege. And I can't do that because I have to put this food on the table. And that you know right. that's that's external constraints, right? There's external constraints there that their name is and how can they incorporate I wanna say taking care of themselves in the pockets that they do, but even then, right? This is we talk about coping and healing. That's not an invitation. Mm-hmm. That would be them coping. That would be this person coping where they can figure out how to strategize to create rest. This is where I feel like we need to move our systems along. So no one has to work three jobs to be able to put food mm-hmm. on their table. Like that just makes sense. So I'm just wanting to name their external constraints in that too, right? And this is where systems yep. become an issue. And I want to just also say that sometimes rest can be threatening because rest requires us naturally to slow down. And, and when feel. we feel that exactly and feel <laughs> and it leaves us and <laughs> leaves us vulnerable to our feelings, right? And so like who wants to do that? <laughs> like who wants to really sit down and and deal with the loss or the losses that they've experienced either recently or through life? Like who wants to deal with the trauma that some that, that the person has been carrying internally and hasn't really looked at, right? No, that requires a lot of feeling. <laughs> it requires a lot of feeling. And, you know, what I mentioned in the book was like, I mean, avoidance is great until it's not. It's great until it's not. It's great until <laughs> until you can no longer, what I was mentioning the last time that we spoke Around like my coping strategies, my survival strategies were good until like it just wasn't. And then I had to do something differently because there was only so much holding that I could do. There was only so much, so much of wanting to separate and dissociate from the pain that I was carrying that I could do before I just needed to feel it. Right. And I think people are just afraid of thawing. People, people, I mean, and it makes sense, but people are afraid that, you know, they've been frozen. These things that they've been not allowing themselves to feel, right? That if they've been exiling, has been frozen for so long that when you rest, you begin to thaw. When you begin to thaw, you begin to feel. You begin to feel the extent, the intensity of your frostbite, And that doesn't feel good. It's temporary, but it doesn't feel good. And I think that that is probably also what drives people to just stay busy, stay busy because yes. if they don't stay busy, it's going to bring up a lot of things.
1: And that's where urgency can have a party then with <laughs> that comforter of busyness and or being a workaholic. you know for me, work has been one of my biggest comforters over the years because um, I love it, so it's a default. And there was this, yeah, but it, it really is, and there's a value though, where we're in, who's valuing? my work? Am I valuing my work? Those that I, when I was working for other people, are I being valued or, you know, and so I think there is this stepping out that it's, it, it's just really seeing the, like you said, there are real constraints and I, I want to, and I hear people name that too saying, oh, great. So you're telling everyone this to rest, but in the end they're going to go rest. I still got to get stuff done. I got a business to run. I got a house to run. <laughs> I got a, I got a class to lead or whatever it may be. So y'all can go rest and I'll still do it. And there's a part of me that's like, well, and this is nuanced depending on the conversation, but sometimes what happens if you didn't? Mm-hmm. What what would happen? Well, things would be light. Bills wouldn't get paid. Deadlines wouldn't be made. People would be disappointed. And we kind of workshop these different things. I know I've had to do it myself. And what we tease out is how much of it is just I need food on the table. Sorry. You know, versus Oh, I'm feeding an identity that it's no longer serving me. Right. I'm 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 afraid of people criticizing me. I'm afraid of feeling and thawing and feeling what's really beneath there. And so it's kind of teasing out the nuance of this polarity. But urgency. I I was raised like you're the first to get it done. You're the best. Yeah. Um. You know it, that competitor in me. It then became. You know who can do it quicker. Who can, it wasn't even better, yeah, no. even though that was still like if you can do it quick and the best. You know, and so there's a lot of those narratives to kind of unpack through those constraints of just bottom line, food, shelter. <laughs> you know, bills. Um, and and this isn't so not to say this flippantly, but you're right about the thaw because even with those constraints. If things circumstances change, and I've seen that with folks where they can take space because they don't have to work as hard, they have a hard time downshifting.
0: Mm -hmm. Because it's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying to slow down. Yeah, it makes it makes total sense. And especially if you are holding a legacy burden of like I must achieve, I must achieve, right? In order to stay behind. I mean, in order to not be behind, right, or in order to stay ahead, that, I mean, it's just such a driving, overwhelming force to do that. And it really colludes with larger cultural uh, messages.
1: And don't you find just even naming the polarity between urgency and rest can really help within ourselves when others start to kind of not just be reactive, but say, what am I gonna choose? even if the choices are maybe tiny differences, kind of
0: reclaiming some agency. What about if we combine them it's like the urgency to rest? (laughs) Like the urgency to rest. (laughs) What about that? (laughs) Sometimes I also see rest as like, you know, maybe not even stillness, but how do we put down what it is that we're carrying? How do we like luggages, right? How do we just lay them down for a moment? How do we just lay down, put down what it is that we're carrying and just not hold it for a moment? And then we can pick it up again if that's what we you know, if that's what we need to do, if that's what we want to do. But how do we just put it down for a moment?
1: And that's powerful because I don't I I know for me and I know many, I I know, I don't think we always know all that we're carrying and that we have a choice sometimes. And sometimes it doesn't feel like a choice to put it down. It's really tough though to detach from the current of urgency. It's addictive. It is, and it's and it's protective, and everyone's doing it. Yeah, it's weird. Every so if you're stepping out, you become the outlier. <laughs> yeah. you know, and everybody else,
0: and it's hard because we get rewarded. We get rewarded for doing things they're thinking, right? So, like, yeah, you're saying you step out, and now people are looking at you like, what's happening?
1: So, I suspect you and I are hard pressed to find anyone who does not navigate parts of themselves that are highly critical of themselves. And and this is often talked about in terms that you address in your book and we hear a lot, imposter syndrome, inner critic, scarcity mindset. And I'm, I'd love for you to walk me through the roots of these protective parts from your perspective and how you befriend them instead of exiling them when they get loud.
0: So for me, I'll speak for myself, I mean, I definitely have all of the above. Um, <laughs> I have I have like inner critic headquarters. I think they're like several bosses. Like, <laughs> they have like their own building. And then there are others. I, you know, I've learned, Rebecca, in being curious and being curious about how these really protective parts of me have come to be. Like when I think about Imposter syndrome. A lot of imposter syndrome. Well, part of it going back to rewind second grade. Um, you know, already kind of learning there that I didn't belong. That, that there was something wrong with what I was doing. Right. That there was also no space for my vulnerability. There was no space for you know the teacher checking in with me to see like maybe what I was holding. None of that. None of that. Um, learned from a very. Early age, that just my strife, that just my struggle was not welcomed, and that, that I wasn't welcomed because now you're internalizing that as a kid, right? You're not saying, "Oh, it's you know, part of me." It's it's me. I am not mm-hmm. welcomed, and so learning from a young age, that learning also from a young age when you're, you know, growing up in the projects, you learn like there are certain things. That other people have that you don't have. There are other th- things that other people can afford that you cannot afford. And so it's more of the like, I, I'm not enough. I don't have enough. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I am not enough. Like these kind of things really created a lot of the burden that this part of me that is carrying imposter syndrome has. Plus, again, when we think about what happens systemically, there's also pieces of systemic racism there's also pieces of systemic oppression and i've had even in, in high school even in high school i remember hearing from my white dean that you know if i that that not to not expect to get into my first choice college that my grades weren't good enough they weren't going to look at me and really discouraged me from applying to my first choice college Fortunately, I didn't listen because I'm my, my rebellious. <laughs> I'm like, you know, f you, lady. Um, and I actually did get into my first choice college. <laughs> um, you know, I learned from these kind of experiences. Oh, you're not good enough. What what you are producing is not good mm. enough, and so you don't belong in these spaces. These spaces are not for you. So hearing it energetically and hearing these kind of things verbally have created the imposter syndrome that my system holds. And I find that to be true with a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, live in a, living in different marginalized bodies than I have that have experienced even more, right? Um, just the Common denominator message being, you are subhuman. You are, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't approve you, or, you know, you are not, you don't belong. You don't belong. And just hearing that, hearing that, that becomes your internalized message. And then my, my inner critic headquarters comes in and, you know, they, they also hear that message and they're like, well, now we have to, you know, now we have to remind you (laughs) of all the ways that. You know, because you don't belong, now we have to shame you. Now we have to criticize everything that you do to make sure that you try to belong, so that you try mm-hmm. to, you know, thrive, right? So that you try to survive. And so, you know, these, these parts that feel so hurtful make sense to me. Because they're only hurtful because, you know, they've become so extreme because of these extreme messages that they've heard about just not belonging and not being good enough. So when they show
1: up, though, how do you befriend them instead of exiling them? Because so much out there is teaching us to exile and we're going to kill the doubt, right? Uh, You know, punch the fear in the face, you know, you know, crush the questioning and And all these little phrases out there and and it's like uh, it's so violent you know for one um but again from an internal family systems line it's like mm -hmm. befriend and people look at you like befriend the thing that's beating you up inside yeah Yeah. and so i just would love to hear how you know you identify them and where the roots of them so thank you so what's your practice when you catch them sometimes we can i know we can catch them right away sometimes we're like oh shoot i'm in the deep end of this mm-hmm. um and they're blended and leading and so yeah
0: how do you befriend them when they get loud so i've done the former, of you know essentially castle culturing them <laughs> <laughs> inside mm-hmm. um now i feel so open-hearted toward these parts and and These two in particular, because they've been the strongest. They've really, really tried to get me to survive. They've really tried to to get me and help me belong. And when I notice the charge of them, like I will often say, Mm -hmm. like I often put my hand over my heart and I'm just saying like, what's happening right now? And who, yeah. whose message is this that you're speaking? Whose message is this? Depending on what the message is, is this yours? Whose is this? And it has gotten a lot easier because some of this is like, this has come from, you know, what I've been taught about myself, right? From white supremacy culture. Okay, we, this doesn't belong to us right now. Is there, is there anything that, you know, feels scary about releasing this? What, what, what is it about? This that I'm holding on to, and usually it's just the fear. Usually it's just fear that I'm going to be wrong about me, fear that I'm going to mm. be wrong about me, and I'm going to fail. But maybe even that I'm going to succeed, right? Because if I'm going to succeed, then I'm going to be Hello. seen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, then yeah. I'm going to be seen, and if I'm seen, what is what are people going to say about me? People are going to you know speak from parts. People are going to speak from. Systems that have been inter- that have internalized racism and have implicit bias And people like when I'm seen, I'm called a, a variety of names, right? Both for my because of my gender and because of my ethnicity and my race and how I look and how I speak. So there is that fear of being successful because of what that means, and it just. That 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 polarization of like I'm not like there's a this the fear of success and the fear of failure really just I want to say live within me they're very alive within me, and I'm just really speaking to my part when they're telling me that I, I shouldn't sit in that table or when they're telling me I'm not welcome there that I'm reminding them whose message is this because this is not this is not my message to me because I know. I am my medicine and I am enough, right? And I've always been enough. There is nothing that I have to prove to be enough. There's nothing I need to do to be enough, right? That This book, this book is soul work, but I didn't need this book to be enough, right? The work that I do, I'm enough because I'm enough because I am, right? So like I... I continue to speak with these parts around that to remind them that this is not theirs and that we're going to navigate this together and that I can protect us. And that really, Rebecca, softens my system. And they usually come, they return at some point to kind of check in, right? But I think they trust me a lot more than what they did back then. Back then they were like, hell no. Mm. (laughs) The world is dangerous. We can't, we can't, right? This is this is like a matter of life and death. And now they're kind of seeing more that I really got this. And because I'm building mm-hmm. relationship with them because I'm not shunning them the way that I did before. Now is I'm leaning toward them. I'm not running away. I'm leaning toward them. I'm showing care to them. That That's made such a difference.
1: The fear often is befriending means I'm going to get hijacked even more. But most of these parts hate hurting us too. Yeah. They don't like being bullies. Yeah. Us. Yeah. Most bullies don't enjoy their job, the ones inside us and the ones in the world. Right. There's a few that probably do, very few. We'll <laughs> leave it right. there, but for the most part. <laughs> but yeah, that's beautiful, Natalie. Thank you for sharing your process. I, I feel that in my body, um, in our field. We talk about this phrase attachment wounds, right? Mm-hmm. It, it gets tossed around a lot, but really it's, it's wounding on how we relate, usually connected to our primary caregivers. Um, and so we have wounds from those connections and you've touched on that a little bit today, but in our first interview, um, from your family of origin and from experiences in your school, I'm curious for you, if you could take me back when you realized the burden, how these burdens of your attachment wounds impact impacted how you
0: set and maintain boundaries. I didn't have boundaries. (laughs) That that wasn't even a word. That that Mm. that didn't even exist in my thought process in my vocabulary. That just was not a thing. That was not a thing. So you know and 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 in fact I learned the complete opposite that you know, you are you. You're expected to be overly giving. You are expected to just show up for people, right? Your body is not yours, right? So I've learned many things counter to the. You know, when we think about boundaries, like I've learned many things counter to that, and why boundaries is not a thing. Uh. You know, I, I want to say that that struggle where I really began to see that I that there was an issue was, you know, going back to college again, where I was, you know, in a relationship that was pretty toxic and I was toxic, too. And so was this person. And I don't want to say, no, I I, I I take that back. <laughs> I was hurting. <laughs> I was hurting and mm. this person was hurting, too. Um, And, you know, we were hurting each other, but I didn't know that I could walk away because that felt like, you know, that felt like love. Like that felt like that, you know, if if I walked away from this person, I am not going to receive love. And so it's like, you know, whether it's good love or bad love, it's some kind of love. It's better than no love at all. And so you kind of stay because that's what you've been taught, right? That's what I saw growing up. I saw that it doesn't matter if, if you know, love hurts. Sometimes you stick with it. So that is what I mm-hmm. learned about, you know, boundaries or lack thereof. And so, um, and that's also during colleges where I began to see, wow, I really struggle with even acknowledging or seeing what my needs are or like saying no. And that was, you know, that was a big thing. I really, really felt I was really didn't feel like I deserved to say no or that I deserved to have a voice. And so um, you know, fast forward when you start when you start learning how to set boundaries, people, the people in my life, I'll say that didn't know how to set them. Began to, you know, experience my setting of boundaries as like disrespectful, right? Yeah. Um, disrespectful or as a betrayal, right? As as that. You're breaking the rules. Yeah. You're breaking the rules. You are completely breaking the rules. So you are not allowed to stand up for yourself. You are not allowed to say what doesn't work for you or you know, that is just not, that's taboo. That's not something that you do. Uh, you're supposed to be self-sacrificial, right? Um, mm. And so that was a learning curve for folk because, you know, when I began to learn how to set boundaries, people were not used to me doing that, right? Like some folks in my family were not used to me doing that. And mm. so, you know, it it lands on them as threatening because they don't know how to set those boundaries themselves. And they've benefited mm. from me not having those boundaries. So this so boundaries can feel like a like a like you know as a form of attack, right? Or as a form of just like I mentioned before, like disrespect or whatever, but it really is self-preservation and relationship preservation at the same time. I want to like you later. And so I need to say no <laughs> so that I can like you later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a great reframe, Natalie. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's a, it's it's amazing when we're taught that our bodies are not ours to have a say over or our space or our time, you know, or all of the above, right? And we learn that um, based on how we're treated or how we watch other people navigate. And then we see that perpetuated outside of our family. What do we see this in the world too, that can, again, expectations, whether it's in school. And I think too, I, I just remember even some of my earlier jobs, I was working nonstop. And it's like by saying yes to a certain job, I was saying yes to people telling me who, what, when, where, why and how. Like, it's not like I didn't have a say. Yeah. And so that piece of setting boundaries, it is such a loving gesture, not just to ourselves, but to the person we're in relationship with, even if it doesn't feel loving. Mm -hmm. And navigating the backlash is often the most difficult thing Mm -hmm. for people. Um, when they have imagined setting and even trying to maintain a boundary. And it's the most difficult because it really does. The message is you're betraying us by you saying, no, not now, never, not okay, or this way. <laughs> and that sets us up for boundary struggles in our lives. And you, you touch on the just again, the, especially the part around our body and you write in your book. Reclaiming your relationship to your body is one of the most important gifts to give yourself, especially in a world that has taught you to hate your body as a result of internalized racism, sizism, sexism, ableism, transphobia, and all other relational wounding. wounding. Being fl- I love this. Being fluent in your body's language is the antidote to trauma. I'm going to read that again. Being fluent in your body's language is the antidote to trauma. Now, when people work with you and I, right, we're always like, okay, tell me, what are you noticing in your body, right? Where are you feeling that? We're like, people, like, okay, Rebecca, I know you're going to ask me what I'm feeling. Can we have a different question? You know, but that's, it's the mind body connection. It's everything. And so I'd love for you to walk me through what reclaiming this relationship with your body has looked like.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I remember a a mentor of mine, um, Dr. Eric Gentry, has shared one time, you know, the most important thing for a survivor um, of sexual trauma is to be able to give himself the gift of having good sex in the future. There is a reclaiming that happens where it says, you perpetrator are not going to be in the bedroom with me. You are out. I am keeping you out of the room, right? So so I, I have his words with me because I think it's just been a journey in all the ways, all the ways in which I see my body, the way that culture tells my, the larger culture tells me my body should look like, how my um, ethnicity, culturally, familiarly, when you look at, you know, when folks see your body, it, they sometimes they comment on it, right? Sometimes it's, oh, you're gaining weight or sometimes it's, oh, you are not eating enough. (laughs) Uh, So it's like even never good enough there. (laughs) There's always something, you know, when we talk about walking through internalized fat phobia, when when we go through internalized, just what I've learned about my body. Again, when you mentioned before the boundaries, I've learned that my body is like fair game. I've learned that my body, you know, is fair game from a young age for people to hit or violate in some sort of way. So um, my journey with my body has been long and has, I want to say, improved significantly uh, because I'm just, I'm telling it and I'm giving it love. Because I'm, i mm. and, and, and I have to say that the most, the smallest way, which is also the biggest way is that I've allowed myself to look at it. I've allowed myself to look at my body, like look at it in the mirror. <laughs> you know, I have always been the person to not look at, you know, at, at myself in the mirror. Like uh, you just kind of like, okay, you get ready and you go. I don't have many mirrors in my house. That's one of, I want to get more mirrors in my house so that I can feel more comfortable just looking at myself and it being okay, Mm. right? So that for me has been one of the ways that I am developing a better relationship with myself is allowing myself to see it, to see it and be kinder to it. I think where, if I'm being real, where I think I need to do better is I'm wanting to, I'm wanting to be more conscious about what I'm putting in it, that I really want to, I really want to lean more towards putting things that, you know, my ancestors used to eat, just ways in which I can even channel them through my body. I want to use my body to be in nature more. I want to use my body to travel. I want to use my body in this kind of way. And I want to also... Like have good sex. Like I wanna, I want that to be part of my reclaiming, and I want that for other people too, if that's what they want to.
1: Pleasure is something that trauma annihilates it, and physically, emotionally, all, you know, anything, any of our senses, it it annihilates that and that reclaiming the relationship to your body. Right, like you said, being fluent in your body's language is the antidote to trauma and also through, you know, boundaries too. But it's also, there's something about the mirrors because you wrote about our colleague, Dr. Frank Anderson, who is also a previous Unburdened Leader guest. He talks about trauma colored glasses. Uh-huh. I'm just thinking about you adding more mirrors. Yeah, just even, yeah, just elaborate on that. How is having even more mirrors in your house going to help you adjust
0: the trauma colored glasses. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that question. Because I think the bulk of it is that I'm going to be able to see myself and see the vessel that I live in, see, see me. Because I think a lot, a lot for me, a large part of not seeing me is that I don't want to see myself internally, but I also don't want to see myself externally either. That's, that's what has been the story in the past. So adding mm-hmm. more mirrors allows me to just look at me to really just look at me and like be kind, be kind to myself. Having having more mirrors for me mm-hmm. also feels like more opportunity to like, to see me and to see me in my home, to see me in a face that feels safe and to just say like, I deserve to be seen. Like I des- I deserve to be seen, but I also deserve to see me. So that's such a, it really, like the mirrors are such a big thing, especially because I know how much I avoided them in the past. So like having a more more right. of them is, for me, I think is, um, I really need that.
1: It's almost like I want to add to like, you wrote being fluent in your body's language is the antidote to trauma, but also like reclaiming your relationship with your body's image yeah. is also right. part of that antidote too. And I know many listening are probably like, Oh, hell no. Am I getting more mirrors? Am I? Um, no, I'm not there. Right. That's a big H-E double hockey stick. <laughs> no. Um, And, and I, I, I because we've just been at war, not only if we've been taught that at right. a young age and have had our power taken away, but our culture mm-hmm. continually wants us to be at war to to sell us things right. and to keep us, you know, disconnected um it it, it furthers the trauma colored glasses that frank talks about you you also write about how you wrote about being numb and the numb state i thought is so important to mention too because you know right one of i don't know about you but i know for me when i ask people to check in with what they're where they're noticing like i don't notice anything mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and for me i've I've got a protector. It's my shower curtain. I discovered it when I was when I first took Frank's level two and back in the day when Dick was still teaching it and I was doing we we're little breakout triads and I'm like, oh, it's a shower curtain. My shower curtain comes in and then my arms get tingly and they kind of float up, you know? And then that's when I'm like, my body's like, Nope, well, you are not having access to it right now. So I just see the shower curtain closing and I feel like my arms want to float up. <laughs> You know, and so that's for me. It's like those are the tells, right? Which is great when I see those parts. I'm like, oh, hey, whoa, what's happening? Uh-huh. But so many people are like, Rebecca, stop asking that question. I feel nothing. And they, so we have to really work on, hey, we're just checking in to see if there is a shift or to see if that part that's keeping you. From feeling that, that you're numb part. And that's so I just start to normalize it versus a failing, right? Cause I'm like, okay, that part's here for a reason. And you talked about how this numb state is often perceived as empty and disconnected. And I love what you said. You said it's in fact a data point of overwhelmed. I was like, boom, yes. And you said, and overwhelmed is tied with burnout, as because that's literally probably the most common phrase I'm hearing from both my leadership and clinical clients right now. So I'd just love for you to talk a little bit more about that because yeah. Yeah. How 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 is your relationship with your the parts of you that protect in the numb state?
0: A lot of people tend to feel like I they tend to say, I uh don't feel anything, right? I'm numb. I don't feel anything. And it's and I've I've reframed it because i pulled them you know, is it that you don't feel anything or is it feeling too much? Are you feeling too much that, that something is coming in, right? And shutting it down. And like, and what I was mentioning in my book is like in New York city, if folks in New York city know, like when everyone had their AC on all at the same time, sometimes there are blackouts in the city. (laughs) And, That has to do with just our system going into survival, right? Coming in and just saying, nope, there's way too much you're feeling right now. And I have to shut this down. So it's not necessarily that you're not feeling anything. It's that you might be curious of, are you feeling too much? Are you feeling too much that then? Is bringing up other parts of you that are wanting to shut it down. So naturally, you can survive, right? Because our systems want us to survive, want us to make it through. Um, now I feel like when we think about the pendulum, I've kind of moved to the other side. Where now I'm actually feeling. <laughs> now I, now I, I have parts have sort of softened to allow me to feel a little more. They're still there and they Mm -hmm. still come in like if it's feeling if I'm if I'm really just flooded with something that I just can't, you know, in the moment I'm trying to just get my bearings. There will be this numbing piece that that for me uh, shows up as like a boulder and that's how I feel that. But it's always when I'm feeling a lot at the same time and a lot like when parts are doing popcorn and I'm like trying to really seeing it's just feeling a lot especially when there's I want to say greed uh, or when there's um, rage that's there and some shame that's when I feel it when I when when more of this the, the numb boulder comes in until I can kind of navigate that right and and give the other stuff some love but, but it's been a real journey it's been a real journey. And I like how you used the word permission before because that's exactly what that, felt, that feels like. Do I have consent to actually feel? Do I have permission mm-hmm. for this this number within me to not have to come in because I'm feeling too much, not because I'm not feeling at all?
1: Yeah, it's sometimes we don't, feeling all the feelings all the time is not healthy either. It's like, sometimes I'll like grab my chair the sides of the couch, I'll be like, <sighs> You know, my family will be like, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm just letting some stuff feel through me right now. Wash through me. I'm good. If I, Because I've learned if I just brace it and disconnect, it's still here. So I try and let it wash through. And then I'm like, I'll check in with you later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it has to be permission and consent. Yeah, mm-hmm. there, there is this ascent. A relationship saying, it's, I, I'm good. You can give me a little space. Let's let this wash through and we'll tend to it later. But when they come in, that's like, nope, sorry. We've assessed shutting down I'm like okay <laughs> there must be something going on i'm not connected to that these parts are that i need to check in right. we often sometimes judge it if we're for you know sometimes it's too much or we're totally numb but really it's just a I love how you said it, it's a data point of being overwhelmed and if we start to go okay what's going on what's my system doing how is it helping me right now mm-hmm. instead of polarizing with the numb Again, befriending it. So, thank you for that. That's really beautiful. Um, I want to shift it to a question I ask some version of in my clients, but I'm curious how you view success and how you define success now and how that's different than what you were taught.
0: Oh, I love this question. You know, now though, I feel like, well, hmm, I want to give an honest answer because I definitely have little voices in the background that says success is when you get an A (laughs) or like (laughs) (laughs) when you know you make this amount of money (laughs) and I have I have these parts there they're not far away but they're not I don't feel they're not they're not necessarily my full truth anymore they were but they're they they are there um what feels what feels Most true for me today is that success is when I wake up in the morning and say that I want to lead from my authenticity today, that I want to be the most authentic me today. And how can I be one step further in this healing journey with seeing or trying or being mindful about perpetuating? excuse me, not perpetuating or perpetuating intergenerational trauma, how am I really seeing, can I check myself if I'm doing something that has been learned, like am I, where I'm perpetuating legacy burdens, can I see what's alive here in this moment and then can I do, can I make that U-turn? Right before like what you're saying, make that return and do some repair if I do, if I fool someone today. And essentially, all of this boils down to how can I be intentional about the choices that I'm making today, as intentional as I can be? How can I live most authentically today? That for me, if I can lead from a place that feels most authentic for me today, I feel I feel successful, I feel successful.
1: Hmm. And, and just my experience with you is when you are in a place and leading from a place of authenticity, you're, you're speaking truth, you're a truth teller. And I, it is such a gift to witness your authenticity and your truth telling. Um, yeah. And I know, and I know it takes a lot of courage for you to do that. And so I appreciate it. And it is a treasure. I, I'm, I'm curious too. Is this what you thought you'd be doing today? The work that you're doing today, is this what you thought you'd be doing?
0: I want to say yes in a different way, I think. But, you know, I go through, I go to um, I visit a lot of shaman when we do sometimes we talk about past life work. And what I have been told multiple times is that in some way, in some capacity, I've always been a medicine woman. And in my most recent past lives, I was told that I was someone who made medicine with herbs and then, you know, I was burned when they found out that I could do that. And in some way, that's always been my journey. I've always, since high school, have known that I wanted to be a therapist. That was like my thing. I wanted to be a therapist. I wanted to be a therapist. And, and I was always so good at just being, well, one, a great listener, but also just had a lot of Both empathy and compassion for people's struggles, but I've always been very intuitive too. I've always been, you know, what what some folks call intuitive empath, but I've always felt like I was going to do something like this along this lines of wanting to help people and wanting to see people. I really want to see people because a lot of people don't see people. And that is where so much of our wounding comes from and going back to, you know, being the medicine for each other. I want to do that. And that just feels like I, I can't imagine doing anything differently. I really can't. I, I didn't, I wouldn't imagine. I didn't think I would do any of this thing with IFS. Or, I mean, that wasn't like a thing <laughs> in mine, right? But I, I've, I feel like I've always been called to do this in some capacity. Thank you for sharing that. I'd love to
1: wrap Thank up you. by asking you some quick fire questions. All Is right. that cool? Sounds good. All right. So Natalie, what are you reading right now?
0: So I am reading um, this book by Hector Salva and it's called *Espiritismo: Puerto Rican Mediumship and Magic. And it's just walking through just kind of what I was sharing moments ago, just, um, but really in, in the spirit of reclaiming, right? In the spirit of reclaiming ancestral medicine, I'm wanting to reclaim the medicine of the Taino people, which were the indigenous people of Puerto Rico before it was colonized. So I'm wanting to reclaim this magic and I want to learn it. So I've been reading this book. it's so powerful. Love it.
1: Wow. Oh. What song are you playing on repeat? Uh, uh, the
0: whole Bad Bunny album.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he was just in town. He was just in town. Awesome. All right. Best TV show or movie you've seen recently?
0: Oh, that's so hard. Um, I know. Oh, my God. That's so hard. That's so hard. That's so hard. I'll tell you, I'm watching um, this documentary of the Yoruba tribe in Netflix. I can't remember what it's called right now, but yeah, I've been watching that so far and I'm really loving it.
1: What is your favorite 80s movie or piece of 80s pop culture?
0: Oh, um, definitely TGIF. It's when they used to have... Um, family matters um, wow. <laughs> um oh my god a different world i think it was called um oh my gosh just all the lineup for the for friday the TGIF. The whole lineup is at least what i used to watch all the mm-hmm. time what is
1: your mantra right now
0: uh, i think uh, my mantra right now is Preparing for just the the continued exposure of my book is um, something that I think Maya Angelou had shared with Brene Brown, which was or was it Oprah that had shared with Brene Brown? Don't think you can be brave with your life and not upset people. So I'm kind of just reminding myself of that to just remind me to. You know, be coura- be courageous, be courageous in this journey.
1: What's an unpopular opinion that you hold? Mm,
0: probably that Puerto Rico should be independent and not a state. <laughs> that, I think that is contentious.
1: <laughs> Who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human?
0: Mm, everyone. My children, for sure. My children, our children. The youth, really, and just everyone. I I really love I really love people and I just want to see them heal.
1: Mm, That's powerful. And Natalie, I'd love for you to wrap us up today with a quote from your book that I feel like speaks only to our conversations, but to so much of what the unburdened leader is all about. So please close us
0: out. All right. Know that the burdens you carry may be heavy, but they're not you. You are not the burdens you carry. I hope you can find the courage to slowly and steadily release them. Unburden the parts of you carrying the baggage of supremacy culture. The best revenge you can ever give toxic environments and people who wounded you is your healing.
1: Natalie, thank you so much. Where can people? find you and connect with you and where can they get your book?
0: So I am on Instagram. So so people that have Instagram can find me on Instagram and my Instagram handle is at Natalie Gutierrez LMFT. And they can also find me on my website, which is traumacounselingnyc.com. And my book is available in... All the places, in <laughs> you know, in in and hopefully your local bookstore. If not, please let me know because I'd love to make it available, especially you know to support small business. But it's available on the New Harbinger Publications website and Barnes and Noble and Target, etc.
1: Wonderful. Yes, please make sure you get this book and add it to your bookshelf and to your soul, Natalie. Thank you again for coming back. Thank you for showing up. In all the ways that you do, it's been a real honor just to continue this conversation, to get to know you better. And I'm so grateful so many other people are going to have even a deeper window into who you are and to the impact that you already have on so many. So thank
0: you so much. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And I just want to say also, I'm just appreciative of your support, unwavering support. And I just... I'm grateful for your friendship. I love you and I'm just thankful to be here. So thank you for being on this journey with me.
1: Honored. Love you too, my friend. Thank you. I have a PhD in pushing through and I know you do too. And I see it in those I work with and those in my community. Now I get there's times we have to push through while we carry all we do because, well, life. But when we do so because that's what's expected or that's become the norm it comes at a great cost, not just to ourselves, but to our communities and to our meaningful work. Traumas of all kinds continue to break down community and our well-being. And Natalie reminded us we're carrying a lot right now. And she adds that we're also carrying generations of pain. So I'm wondering what do you need to put down right now and stop carrying? What does support look like so you can create a work environment that honors all that we're carrying? And how can you support someone at work or in your life who's carrying a lot right now? Now, as Natalie reminded us, we have a choice to be the medicine to ourselves and others instead of adding to the pain we're all carrying. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up old echoes of doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If this episode impacted you, I'd be honored for you to rate it, leave a review, and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. You can find this episode, show notes, sign up for the free Unburdened Leader Weekly, along with finding resources and ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.